Now we're in an ongoing study of the Gospel of Mark, and we've already read a little section of the larger chunk we're taking. Uh, We're reading here and studying today from the end of chapter 11 through chapter 12, the entirety of it, which means we're having to move at a pretty quick clip. Now the, the good news is, as a church, we've been reading this text together, so hopefully you're already familiar with the verses themselves as we've been reading each week. Um, but know this too, that in a, in a 30, 35 minute sermon, it can be tricky to comprehensively cover all of the nuance and the beauty that's in any given text of scripture. So if as we're studying this together this morning, you feel prompted and provoked, there are questions you have or things you'd like to go a little bit deeper in, you should absolutely study that during the week. Like it's great for you to go back and dig a little deeper and if you need guidance or help with regard to resources to use or commentaries to check or other teachers to listen to or whatever, I'm happy to be a resource for you as you dig a little bit deeper in the days ahead, but we are necessarily moving quickly, so just know that's kind of the name of the game here. Now, where we pick up at the end of 11 is set up beautifully by what we studied last week. If you were with us in our worship services last week, we looked at this situation where Jesus has cleared the temple courts uh, because there are these money changers, people that are, uh, people that are, are utilizing that space for their own personal gain. Jesus clears that, and then we also had him talking about the fig tree. Remember, he curses the fig tree, and Kristen did a great job last week of uh, informing us and teaching us that that fig tree is representative of Israel. And Jesus says, you know, when it's got leaves but there's no fruit, there's a problem. When you've done everything you can to, to grow the fruit and no fruit comes, then that fig tree has to be pulled up and thrown away, right? And so he curses the tree. And that isn't just Jesus being frustrated about a tree, but it's saying something more broadly about his people. That there is an expectation from God that they will be producing this fruit for his glory and he doesn't see that fruit and it's problematic, right? As we come at the end of 11 then, uh, he's, he's cleared the temple courts. Now we see the leaders <clears throat> from the temple coming to Jesus and kind of questioning him about who do you think you are basically? Like by what authority do you think you can come into the temple and chase all these people out of here? By what authority have you done these things, they say here in in chapter 11. By what authority have you done these things? Verse 28. By what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus, in in this section and in the sections that follow, is confronted by various groups of people. Sometimes here by temple leaders, elders, and chief priests. He's also in 12, he'll be confronted by Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and different groups of people. And in each case... He comes back and and what he's trying to do is to frame for them both, not not just the answer to their question, but many times the way in which their very question is indicative of them focusing on the wrong thing. Does that make sense? So some of you know I was was in a band for a little while, a Christian band, and we toured around in the late 90s. I got to travel all over 50 states and we played all over. We drove in a 15-passenger van and Um, It was really fun. It was a really fun time in my life. I don't encourage you to go look up that music because it hasn't aged very well, but nonetheless, that is a part of my life. And I remember one time we had gotten up really early. We were in like Tulsa, Oklahoma or something. We'd gotten up at like four in the morning because we knew we had a long drive. It was like an eight to 10 hour drive to get to the place we were gonna play that night. It was like Columbus, Ohio or something. I don't remember where we're going. And uh, we took turns driving. Each one of us took a different turn. And on this particular day, we get into the van at four in the morning. I go to sleep in the back. Our drummer, Mike, is uh, taking charge. He's the one that's driving. And so we, we start on this long drive. And uh, you know, midway through the day, we stop to get some lunch. 
At one point, I remember him like pulling over and asking uh, some questions for directions, right? So for you young people, uh, I, I will tell you, this is before the days when we had satellite navigation. There was no Google map. You couldn't just say to Google, like, tell me how to get to the church we're playing at tonight, and then it would give you all the directions. There was no turn-based navigation, none of that. <clears throat> we had this ancient device uh, called a Rand McNally Atlas, right? And that was basically a big book. You old timers, you're with me. You know what I'm talking about. This big book you buy at a gas station. It was filled with maps. And if you knew you needed to go from Tulsa, Oklahoma to Columbus, Ohio, you'd open up that Rand McNally Atlas and you'd sort of plot out the course you were going to take and how long it would take you. So we're driving, and I remember our drummer stopping at one point, asking some directions. He gets back in the van, and we keep going. We go a little bit further and we're getting closer and closer to our load-in time. So we'd have a load-in time, we're supposed to haul in all of our gear, you know, and then a sound check and all of that. We're getting closer to the load-in time and it doesn't feel like we're getting closer to our, uh, our destination. And so I remember asking Mike, I was like, hey, dude, are we, are we going to be on time? And he's like, oh yeah, we'll be fine, we'll be fine. I just, I need to pull over and just get a little more direction. So he pulls over, he asks somebody else, you know, do I need to go left or right or do we go further north here? What do we do? I don't know what directions they gave him because I was still in the van, but then we keep going. We pass our load in time, we pass our sound check time, and now it's looking like we're not even gonna be at the venue in time to do the concert, right? So I'm getting nervous. I did the management at the time, so I needed to call the, the concert promoter and tell them that we weren't gonna be there on time. He pulls over so that I can use a phone because again, this is pre-cell phone days. I needed to use a cell phone or a, like, a, like a pay phone. He pulls over, and, uh, and while I'm using the payphone, we're at this gas station, he grabs the atlas, and he goes over to the guy at the gas station, and he says, we're trying to get to this college. Can you tell me, do, how do we get to the 318, or I don't know what the name of the freeway was, but do we go right or left? Like, what's the, what's the way to get to this? And the guy at the gas station, I remember this was like it was yesterday, he looks at him, he goes, there's, there's no way for me to answer your question. And Mike's like, what do you mean? He goes, you aren't even on the right page of the atlas. Like you, this is not where you are. You are in a different place. Turns out that at like four in the morning, Mike had gone the wrong way, right? He'd gone the wrong way. We'd been traveling for eight hours in the wrong direction. Not only were we not gonna make it to our concert, we weren't even in the right state, right? We were in the wrong place. And what I realized in that moment is that there are times where what you think you need is a simple direction. You're looking for somebody to tell you to go left or right, somebody to tell you to go two lights and turn or right, make a U-turn and come back over and pull into, and what you need is not simple directions. In fact, what you need is for somebody to go, you're not even on the right page, right? You can't possibly get where you're going unless you get on the right page. Jesus does that very same thing in this text again and again with people. In the end of 11, He's got these temple leaders and they come to him and they say, by what authority do you do these things? And the implication is, we have all the authority here, right? We are the temple leaders. We are the ones who decide who gets to set up in the temple courts, etc. And Jesus says to them in the section we just read, he says, I'll answer your question about my authority, but first I just want to establish something. And what he's establishing is, what page are you on, right? He says, tell me this, was John the Baptist from heaven or was he from man? His question has to do with whether John the Baptist was actually a prophet of God or whether he was a yahoo, right? Was he just like a crazy person doing his own thing? Was he a renegade or was he endorsed, right, and, and called by God, John the Baptist? Now, at this point, John the Baptist has already been, uh, he's already been arrested and he's already been executed, but the common sentiment among the people was that John the Baptist was a legitimate prophet, which we agree with. 
When Jesus looks at these temple leaders and he says, do you say that John the Baptist is of God or of heaven or do you say that he's of the earth? Rather than answering the question, excuse me, rather than answering the question with their own opinion, we see them deliberating. Here's what happens. He asks the question, look at 31. It says these temple leaders, they discuss it with one another saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, why then did you not believe him, right? So they go, well, if we tell this guy that we think John the Baptist came from God, that he was working on God's behalf, they're gonna immediately ask us, why then are we not following Jesus? Because Jesus famously said, here's Jesus, right? He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'm not fit to tie his shoelaces, right? John the Baptist said. So, so if we say that John the Baptist is from God, they're gonna ask us a question, why have we not been following what John the Baptist said? Similarly though, they, they do the computation here and they say in 32, but if we say from man, well that gets us in trouble too, right? He tells us they were afraid of the people for they all held that John the Baptist was really a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know, right? Jesus says, was John the Baptist from heaven or from man? And they don't actually answer his question. Instead, they do the math to say, what's gonna allow us to hold on to our power? If we say it's, he's from heaven, then these, they're gonna wonder why we haven't been obedient to the things John the Baptist commanded, including following Jesus. If we say he's not from heaven, we're gonna make the people mad. So rather than answering the question, the kind of computation they're doing, the map they're on is a map that says, how do we please people and how do we hold on to our own influence on our own position? How do we hold on to our power? In order to hold on to their power, they couldn't answer the question either way. Instead, they had to look at Jesus and go, uh, we don't know, right? They dodged the question entirely. And when they do that, what Jesus has proven to them and to anybody who's paying attention is that they aren't actually functioning under the authority of God. If they were, they would care more about truthfulness. They would care more about an honest answer, even if the honest answer was indicting to them, right? So even if the honest answer is, we think John the Baptist was from God, and that calls their reputation into question, that would be the better answer if you were submitted to God. These leaders are not submitted to God. They are concerned about public opinion. So what we see is, that these leaders have kind of taken a detour. They've gotten on the wrong page of the map, if you will. And whatever questions they're asking and whatever kind of dispute they bring up, it's not really even worth Jesus answering their question. He comes back at the end and says, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And Jesus isn't being a punk to them. Jesus is saying, there's no sense in us talking about my authority when you yourselves don't understand the authority of God. You're not driven by the authority of God. You're driven by the opinions of man. Now we know, and this is a little bit of a side note, but anytime we end up with religious leaders who care more about public opinion, who care more about their own power, who care more about their own position and retaining their position, rather than they do the authority and the truth of God, we got all kinds of problems. Jesus says, we can't talk about my authority because that's not even really something you care about. What you care about is what other people think. They're on the wrong page. Jesus goes on in chapter 12 to tell this parable, and some of Jesus' parables are... Uh, Confusing, hard to understand, difficult to interpret, not the one in Mark chapter 12. In Mark chapter 12, which we just read at the beginning, the first 12 verses, Jesus tells this parable and he says, okay, there was a vineyard owner and he assigned some tenants to run his vineyard, right? And then after a little while, he sent some of his servants to go and collect the fruit, to gain the profits from the vineyard. And when his servant arrives, the tenants who were overlooking the master's vineyard, they beat up the servant that came. And the, and the next servant that came, they killed him, and that's the way it went for a long time. Every time the vineyard owner 
sent a servant to collect the fruit for himself, they, they either beat that guy within an inch of his life or they killed him. So one day the vineyard master, he decides, you know what I'm gonna do? Some, there's some kind of breakdown. I'm gonna send my beloved and only son. They won't, they won't beat my son. They won't kill my son. Now look, nobody in the crowd was confused about what, what Jesus was talking about. This parable wasn't one that required additional interpretation because the people of Israel viewed themselves as God's vineyard. There's a very famous Jewish prophecy in Isaiah chapter five that talks about the people of Israel and the people of Judah being God's vineyard. And in Isaiah five verses one through seven, God, God says, I was looking for grapes and all I got was this wild fruit that is no good. And so I'm gonna tear down the walls and I'm gonna allow your enemies to come in. They all knew what it meant when the master didn't get the fruit he was looking for from the vineyard. Jesus has just cleared the temple. He's just refuted the authority of the temple leaders. And now he tells this story about the people that were supposed to be running the master's vineyard. And instead of running the master's vineyard for the good of the master, they have this idea amongst themselves. And it says this in Mark chapter 12. Uh, look at verse seven. In Mark 12, seven, those tenants said to one another, this is the master's heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. The vineyard keepers, the tenants, they don't care so much about gathering the fruit or tending the vineyard for the good of the master or the vineyard owner. What they care about is gaining the inheritance for themselves. It's why they beat the servants that had come and why they killed some of the servants that had come. They want to take what only rightfully belongs to the vineyard keeper. What God is saying in this parable, and there were no confusion about it, in fact, the leaders there want to kill Jesus because of it, what he was saying is, God has put you in charge of something and rather than keeping that for the sake of God's glory and the good of other people, you are utilizing your position and your power for your own gain. You're pretending you've gotten on the wrong page, right? You're on the wrong page of the atlas and you're asking questions but your focus is so wrong because you're trying to take something that only belongs to God and keep it for yourself. And in fact, in that endeavor, in the endeavor of trying to take what only belongs to God and keep it for yourself, you will actually end up killing the master's beloved son. Jesus here prophetically speaks about his own death, right? Now you would hope that when Jesus gives this really clear parable that's very clearly pointing out the problems that are taking place in the temple and in, in sort of the, the Jewish religion at large, you would hope that they would go, oh man, like we know what you're talking, like this is a pretty obvious thing. You've just called us on the carpet, right? Wow, this story you just told Jesus, it doesn't paint us in a very good light. It actually makes us look like bums. We have to sort of reevaluate what we've been doing and why we've been doing it. Will you forgive us, right? We are the wicked tenants in God's vineyard. We've been only concerned about our own power and our own glory and our own influence. You would hope that they would hear the story and repent, that they would confess what they'd done, that they would have a change of heart. But instead, what we see happening in Mark chapter 12 at the beginning, Jesus says, you're totally on the wrong page. And instead of them going like, oh no, can you put us on the right page? Instead, the story about violence actually provokes the very thing the story talks about and warns about, right? It says at the end in verses 11 and 12, uh, excuse me, in verse 12, that these leaders then were seeking to arrest Jesus but they feared the people. Once again, they care more about the perception of others than what they actually believe. They feared the people for they perceived that he had told the parable against them and they were right. So they left him and went away. Jesus has said to them, you're on the wrong page. You think all of this is about you and it's actually about God and his glory. It's about the good of other people and you've taken the Lord's vineyard and you're pretending that it's yours, right? And that won't stand. 
Jesus is trying to get them on the right page. He's trying to show them the right way to go. And instead of provoking transformation, instead of provoking repentance or confession, it provokes in them kind of a double down. They go, we don't like what Jesus is saying about us, so we gotta get rid of Jesus. As the story continues, we'll see one interaction like this after another. We've already seen the detour where they care more about people's opinion than truthfulness. We see this detour where they're taking what only belongs to God. Look at verse 13. It says, they sent to Jesus some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. So we know their motivation is wrong from the get-go if they're trying to plant a trap. It is interesting that the Pharisees and the Herodians are working together uh, because these are two groups that were typically not friends, right? The Pharisees were working to liberate the Jewish people from Roman rule. The Herodians had a lot to gain from keeping Herod in power under Roman rule, right? But in this particular case, they're working together and they bring him a question about taxes, right? They bring this question as a trap because they know it will be provocative. They say, are we supposed to be paying taxes to Caesar or not? We're God's people, so don't we have the ability to say, we're not paying some other leader. We don't have any other leader, right? There was, uh, it was sort of hotly contested. And Jewish revolutionaries were saying, basically, we're not paying tax. But if you said you weren't going to pay the tax, then the Roman authorities would come and arrest you. So they know by asking Jesus this question, they back him into a corner. If Jesus says, no, Roman rule means nothing, only God's rule matters, then he's gonna get himself in trouble with the government. If he says, no, you should pay your taxes, then he's gonna get himself in trouble with the Jewish people who are ready for the Romans to be routed, right? So they come to him and they say, what are we supposed to do here? And Jesus masterfully, he doesn't answer the question they're asking. They're saying, should we go left or right? Instead, he says, you're on the wrong page, right? You're asking for little directions right here in the midst of your circumstance. The, the question, by the way, uh, just as a little sidetrack here, the question they're ask, asking about tax and the frustration they feel has as its root a desire to hold on to. Why, why is it we don't want to pay taxes? Why is it they didn't want to pay taxes to their Roman occupiers? Because we want to hold on to what we think we've earned. We want to hold on to what we think we deserve. So in the same way that in the previous story in the parable, the religious leaders are trying to hold on to what only belongs to God, now they legitimately are saying, we have some things and we don't want to give those things away. We definitely don't want to give them away to Romans. We want to keep what's ours. So even the very question, the trap is only possible because there is a tendency for human people to want to keep what they believe belongs to them and not to give it away. Jesus beautifully says to them, why don't you give me a denarius? Anybody have a denarius? One of these Roman coins. Now interestingly... Some Jewish people wouldn't even carry denarius because it was a blasphemous coin. It had Caesar's picture on it, but then on the backside it talked about Caesar being the son of Augustus who was divine. Augustus the divine, it would say on the back of the coin. You can actually Google that coin if you want to read it. Uh, but So a lot of Jewish people wouldn't even carry the coin because they saw it as confirming that Augustus was divine, which was blasphemy. In this particular case, Jesus goes, could somebody give me one of those denariuses? And these people are able to procure one. So that says something about how, uh, how legalistic they were, I guess. But they pull that coin out and Jesus looks at it and he says, well, I see Caesar's picture on it. Here's, here's what Jesus actually says. He says in verse 15, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought one and he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. 
Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. He says, you're on the wrong page. You're thinking about holding on to your stuff and not having to give away the things you think you deserve. But let me say this. Are you utilizing Caesar's roads? Are you utilizing Caesar's form of government? Are you utilizing his trade routes? Are you reaping the benefits of being under Roman rule? Then give Caesar what he's deserving. That's what's on his picture. But the bigger, the bigger issue, he says, is Caesar's image is on this coin but when I look at all of you, I see God's image. He's, he's pushing them to think about Genesis, right? That every woman and every man is made in the image of God. He says if, if, you're, if the image is on it, it belongs to the person whose image is there. This coin it belongs to Caesar. Pay it back to him in your taxes. That's fine. The bigger issue, being on the right page, is to recognize that everything you are and everything you have, everything you think you have gained and everything you think you control, that actually was given to you by God. You were made in his image and what you should be focused and preoccupied on is how do I give God back out of the overflow of the life and breath that he's given to me? This coin is an image bearer of Caesar, but you all are the image bearers of God. Give unto God that which he deserves, right? What's he doing? He's not just answering their question about the taxes. In fact, he doesn't answer that very well. What he says is there's a bigger picture which has to do with the fact that everything you are belongs to God and should be dedicated to him. He continues to sort of move and then the Sadducees, uh, the Sadducees come to him. Now, the next section here, uh, the detour we see there, we've seen detours that have to do with caring about public opinion. We've seen people on the wrong page because they're trying to hold on to what only belongs to God. We've seen people on the wrong page because they're trying to hold on to what they themselves have earned and they don't want to get rid of any of that. Now we see the Sadducees come. And the Sadducees uh, pose this really weird word problem where they say, okay, we got a question for you, Jesus. Uh, you know, in the Old Testament, it says that if a, uh, if a man dies and he doesn't have an heir, then the brother of the man is supposed to marry his wife, right? And, and sort of continue his line. And the, the kids that are born from that marriage then will take care of the woman in old age, that kind of thing. What if, they say, what if this woman, right, her husband dies, she doesn't have any kids, she marries his brother, that guy dies, they don't have any kids, another brother she marries, third one, no kids, he dies, fourth brother, this is a big family, right, it's like an illogical question. Seven brothers, they say, right, this woman goes through seven brothers, never has any kids, I mean, when she gets to heaven, Jesus, whose wife's she gonna be, right? It's so weird, it's such a weird question. Let me tell you where it comes from. The Sadducees were people who refuted resurrection, and Mark even tells us that here in the first couple of verses after 18. Sadducees came to Jesus. They were those who said that there is no resurrection, and they asked him this question. They asked the question because they want to hold on to their interpretation of the scriptures. Much like the people who were asking the question about the taxes wanted to hold on to their cash, much like the Jewish temple leaders wanted to hold on to their power and their position, now we've got the Sadducees who are saying, our way of reading the Bible is the right way. Our way of understanding resurrection is the right way. And so they want to put Jesus in a trap where he will not be able to answer the question, right? So they say, this woman, she marries these seven brothers because that's what it says in the Old Testament. Who, who if there's resurrection, which we don't believe, how do we decide whose husband or whose wife she's going to be in eternity, right? And Jesus does something really masterful here. We don't have time to, to dig into the full depth of it. But essentially, they're saying there is no resurrection. They were, the Sadducees also, for what it's worth, were people who only held that the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, right? Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, those were authoritative and nothing else, right? So they had, they had interesting theological ideas, 
they denied that there was any resurrection. They say, you know, resurrection doesn't make any sense because this woman will have seven heavenly husbands and how does that work, right? Jesus pushes back on them and I actually want you to hear what he says because it's profound and it's really important. Jesus says here in verse 24, he says, is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. He says, you're trying to hold on to your interpretation and your interpretation is the thing that makes the most sense, has the most value to you and you don't want to lose it. But he's like, what's crazy is you're on the wrong page because you're neither paying attention to what the scriptures actually say or the power of God. Now he's saying something profound. And again, we're gonna come back to this after Easter. We're doing a study after Easter on how to read the Bible. But here what Jesus says is, it isn't just the words on the page that give you direction. It's the words on the page combined with who God is and what he's doing. So they're referring to leveret marriage, and I don't want to get in the weeds on this, but leveret marriage was a provision that was made in the Old Testament law so that when, a, when a, a man died, if he didn't have an heir, there was no one to take care of his wife in that particular culture, that the woman wouldn't just be discarded, right? In the culture at the time, that was what happens. If a woman was widowed and she had no heir, she wasn't marryable, right? They wouldn't remarry her, and so she was basically cast off. She was thrown away. God comes along and in his law he makes a provision for a widow with no heir and he says actually someone from that man's family, his brother, should marry her and continue his line and also provide for them, right? Create an heir that would provide. Now, we look at that in 2024 and we go, this is barbaric. Leverett marriage is gross. I guarantee you there are probably no women in here who want to marry their brother-in-laws, right? Oh, maybe there were a couple who seemed interested. It's fine. We'll talk about that later, right? We look at that and we like, we're like, why are other people deciding who this woman's gonna marry? Why are the Sadducees deciding who's gonna be your heaven, who's gonna be your heavenly husband? Like, all of this feels kind of gross because it feels a little bit like the woman's being treated like property. Doesn't feel like she has any choice in it. It certainly doesn't feel like it's in line with our modern sensibility with regard to marriage, right? They are concerned about that. Jesus looks at them and says, you've misunderstood because the leveret marriage thing was just given to push that culture in a positive direction. Instead of treating a widow like she was trash, care for her, right? Love her and care for her. Now, that's not an accommodation we still maintain today because we have moved in a better direction, which is that woman has autonomy and she is not a piece of property and she's not owned by anybody and she can make her own decisions. But what God was describing in leveret marriage was not the ultimate ethic. It was a movement toward the ultimate ethic, right? But it wasn't perfect. Jesus is saying, you can't see this because you're not paying attention to both what the words on the page say and the spirit and nature of who God is, the power of God and his word. Those things have to go together in order to understand the trajectory of the Bible. So Jesus comes back and he says, in eternity, marriage as you understand it is not even the same thing, right? He says in verse 25, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now this is a verse that's been frustrating for a lot of people, especially if you're in a happy marriage, right, here on earth, and you read a verse like that and you think, what's this mean? It means when I go to heaven, I, I don't get to be with my wife anymore, I don't get to be with my husband anymore. Now, some of you are probably really excited about that, right? You like pray this every night before you go to bed. Uh, but for those of you who are in happy marriages, you read this thing and you're like, wait a second, I put all this time and effort. The Bible says we're one flesh, like that just goes away in heaven? Well, let, let me be clear. Jesus isn't painting a perfect picture of what 
what heaven looks like in community, right? He doesn't speak here about what happens with single people. He doesn't speak here about what happens with widows and people who never get married. He doesn't doesn't give us the ultimate ethic of what community and relationships look like in heaven. But what he says is, the picture painted of leveret marriage was simply a provision at that time, but it doesn't speak to the whole spirit of God throughout the course of history. And when we get to heaven, there won't be any question about whose husband she is because our community, our marriage will look different. So what I want you to understand is God's not saying your marriage won't matter in heaven. What he's saying is that whatever happens in eternity in resurrection life will be better, better than what you experience now. You love your marriage now? Whatever that is in eternity, and he doesn't give us real clarity here, will be better than all that you love about your marriage now, right? If you are in a difficult marriage now, what happens in eternity will be better. If you're not married and you wish you were, it will be better in eternity. If you're not married and you're happy you're not married, it will be better in eternity. There is a trajectory to God's word. He's pushing us towards something perfect and eternal, right? And here he looks at these Sadducees and he says, you're so preoccupied with holding on to your interpretation that you can't see that God's doing something bigger than that. He goes further than just this explanation he says, as for the dead being raised, verse 26, you've not re- have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, that's Exodus 3 and 4, how God spoke to him saying, I'm the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Jesus says, you all revere the Pentateuch. You revere Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. And haven't you read in Exodus chapter 3, where God comes to Moses, and what is, by the way, what's God doing there? He's saying, I'm gonna take my people who were figuratively dead in slavery in Egypt, and I'm gonna lead them to life in the promised land. Not only that, he says of himself to Moses, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Remember the story of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Abraham was an old man. His wife was an old woman. They had no hope of life, of a, of a descendant, even though God had promised them that. Her womb was essentially dead, and God brought life. He says, again and again, we see these stories. And when God says to Moses, who am I? He doesn't say, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God of Isaac. I was the God of Jacob. Those guys are gone. Now I'm the God of Moses. He says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So there's layer upon layer upon layer from the Pentateuch where Jesus would say, God has always been about life and not about death. You're on the wrong page. You're on the wrong page. Right? Jesus again and again is trying to reorient these people because they're asking these little questions, little theological things, little social things, little cultural things, right? And Jesus is going, no, you're on the wrong page. And here we'll get the clarity on that. Turn with me now to verse 28. One of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that Jesus answered them well, he asked Jesus, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's the Shema. He says, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Jesus has been saying again and again, you're on the wrong page. All you care about is your own power, but that power belongs to God. All you care about is your own wealth, but that wealth was given to you by God. All you care about is public opinion, but God cares about truthfulness. Now Jesus irrefutably says, let me tell you what page of the atlas you're supposed to be on. The page of the atlas, you wanna orient your life, you wanna figure out which way to go and what to do and how to answer all your questions, you gotta be on this page, and this page is... Love God with everything you are. Heart, soul, mind, and strength just means your whole being. Right? Those aren't different categories. Love God with everything you are. 
and love each other. What's the problem with the temple leaders? They're not preoccupied with loving God and loving others. They're preoccupied with holding on to their positions, holding on to the, the public opinion in their favor. What's the problem with the wicked tenants in the parable Jesus tells? They're not concerned with loving the vineyard keeper or caring for the people in that neighborhood. What do they care about? Let's figure out how we can get the inheritance, right? They don't love God and love others. What's the problem with the Sadducees? What's the problem with the scribes? In each one of these cases, they don't have room for loving God and loving others because they're preoccupied with things that don't matter to God at all. Here Jesus says the most important is love God and love your neighbor. Verse 32, the scribes said to him, you're right, teacher. You've truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. He goes, I hear what you're saying. It feels like the right page doesn't have anything to do with all the religious trappings and all the goofy things we can get ourselves bogged down in. What seems to matter is loving God and loving other people. And listen to Jesus' response. Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, verse 34, and Jesus said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Jesus isn't insulting the man, by the way. When you, when you read, you're not far from the kingdom of God, you can read that to be like Jesus is saying, you're not in the kingdom of God. Jesus isn't putting the guy down. He's saying, finally, I've bumped into somebody who's headed in the right direction. When he says you're not far from the kingdom of God, it's like saying you're, all, you're right there, you're on your way, right? Jesus looks at this scribe who has affirmed that loving God and loving others is the, is the, you know, pre, the preeminent issue. And Jesus says, finally, I see somebody who doesn't need to have the pages of their atlas swapped out. This is a guy who's heading in the right direction. Does he have it all figured out? No. Do you? No. Do I? No. But I want to be on my way to the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? I want to be experiencing the kingdom of God in increasing measure. And I got to be on the right page to experience the kingdom of God in increasing measure. Jesus says, finally, I've met one that's on his way. He'll go on right after this, and we won't get in the weeds on it, to show them one more place where their understanding of Scripture is okay, but it's not the best. The temptation there is to hold on, again, to feeling like you know everything. And then he finishes in chapter 12 with this warning and observation, verse 38. It says, in his teaching, Jesus said, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, and they like greetings in the marketplace, like being recognized they like to have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. And they devour widows' houses for a pretense, make long prayers. He said, you have to be careful of people who are on the wrong page. You can recognize them because what they care about is being recognized by other people, sitting in honorable seats, making sure the public opinion for them is all really good. Meanwhile, they're, they're thought of really well, but in the background, they're stealing from other people to line their own pockets, and all of their religious practice, he says, it's a facade, it's a mask, it's an illusion in order to gain more for themselves. He says, beware. He says, their condemnation will be great. And he sat down, verse 41, opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty and she has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Now listen, literally, this woman has put in less money, right? Don't be confused. She's put in two coins, and it's less than what the rich people put in. Jesus is making a profound statement here. He's saying in the economy of the kingdom of God, while you can give less because you have less, 
it can actually be credited as more because it's coming from a place of poverty, right? It's coming from a place of sacrifice. We talk about this in our church all the time. We don't all give the same things because we're in different stages of life. Some of these young folks here who are trying to get through college and figure out how to even rent an apartment in California, they have less funds available to them than some of us who are at a different stage of life. We're not expecting that they're gonna give the same thing financially, but we are all called to give from a place of poverty. Again and again, we've seen people who are trying to hold on to their opinion. They're trying to hold on to their power. They're trying to hold on to things that only belong to God. They're trying to hold on to public opinion. All of that is to puff oneself up. And it's the wrong page. Jesus says, come to the page where all you care about is loving God and loving other people. Where you don't have to pump up your own reputation. You don't have to hold on to your stuff. You don't have to hold on to stuff that belongs to God. You don't have to even hold on to your opinions and your preferences. You can turn loose of all of that. It's a place that goes... I don't know what I've got, but what I've got, I will give to God. He goes, that's the person that's really giving something. That's the person who's really giving something. He says, this woman has given more. And he's doing a different kind of math. You see, for us, authority, control, personal gain, public perception, comfort, understanding, honor, empty religious practices, they're all detours. If you try and follow them, you won't have room in your life to get directions for where you actually want to go. Once you surrender and admit you're impoverished in these areas, you'll find yourself back on track, giving out of your poverty. Poverty of spirit, poverty of intellect, poverty of understanding, poverty of literal wealth, poverty of whatever. Then we're giving from a place of love for God and love for others that isn't distracted by a preoccupation with trying to take care of me trying to take care of my desires and my needs and my wants. Jesus, again and again in this section, is saying, I hear you asking me questions. You want to know whether you should turn right or left, but I got to tell you, I can't answer your question because you're on the wrong page of the atlas. Let's get on the right page of the atlas, and then the way to navigate will become clear. Would you pray with me? God, will you, will you help us to see ourselves clearly, to see uh, our poverty to see our lack of understanding and to see our lack of power and to see our lack of influence, to turn loose of the need to be liked by other people and to make decisions based on public opinion rather than the truth. All of those things, will you free us from that so that the only things we hold in our hands are a deep and meaningful love for you with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and a love for one another. It isn't watered down at all by personal pursuits or selfish endeavors but it's pure in its love for you and its love for others. God, I pray that you would show us the truth of who we are and that you would temper that with your love and your mercy and your grace for us as well. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and for his glory, amen.